I remember towards the end of my college uh, career that the show Lost was this huge TV phenomenon. And we used to have these Lost parties from week to week where people would come over and we would all sit and we would watch Lost together. And one of the things I love about getting together with you guys on, on a Sunday morning is that we come from very different walks of life, very different experiences, different age groups and political perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. But we come together on Sunday mornings to worship God together. And I think that that is just awesome because of all the things that we care about in life, we share in common the most important, the most significant, that we all have a love for Jesus. So, you know, when we say it's great to be here worshiping with you guys on a Sunday morning, we really mean that. It is great to get together with you guys and to praise the name of Jesus and to be encouraged together. Um, before I get into Galatians, let me just make a couple quick announcements. If you're a guest here or you don't get my emails, which I have been faithfully sending them out the last couple of weeks, and you would like to get those emails, uh, there's a contact card on your seat. We'd love for you to fill that out. Give us your contact info. Additionally, um, if there's something we can be praying for you for, please fill that in on the back of the card. Uh, we will be sure to keep that in our prayers. I pray for you guys weekly. Um, and then when the offering basket goes by during our last song, so there will be three songs after I'm done teaching, you can just drop that in there so that we can uh, stay, stay in touch with you guys. Um, and then the other thing is we're still doing our food drive. This is, we, we were supposed to start at the beginning of July, but my bad, the announcement didn't come out until about mid-July. So we were supposed to have a much longer period of time in which we were going to be gathering food supplies. Um, I'd still really love to try and hit 500, which is a big, ambitious goal for a church our size, but we worship a big, ambitious God. So uh, I'd love for you guys to, to look at your budget, to figure out how in the world you could squeeze in to maybe bring uh, 10 items per family. Uh, that would be kind of the goal. Uh, and let's see if we can hit that 500. You know, uh, um, I, I think it would be amazing for us as a church to celebrate that together. So the bins, I put them out by the front entry. They're just green bins. They don't say anything on them at all. Maybe between now and next Sunday we can paint on their food drive or something like that. But if you bring that food, I'd love for you to drop it in there. Um, when we had Wendy come and speak, Mitch mentioned this last week, she said they always need peanut butter, pasta sauce, and, and pasta noodles. So that's fairly easy. You know, if you can go buy a, a couple of those, uh, we would love for you guys to contribute. It would really mean a lot to us. Um, there's actually like an a, a, a interfaith food drive competition that goes on this month. And uh, it's, it's supposed to be like among all the churches. Because of our late start, we opted to not compete uh, but that's only because we just didn't want to outshine the, the competition. But I'm just kidding. Um, I, I would just love for us to try and hit that, that personal goal of 500. So um, with that said, we are going to get into Galatians. And I, I, gotta, I have to brag about this. This is my new Bible. Last week I said I couldn't read it because I have this little Bible that's ratty and falling to pieces, and I, I love it. But uh, a, a friend of mine, Tom, gave me this Bible this, this morning, actually. So I'm excited to uh, be teaching to you guys out of my brand new ESV that's big enough that I can read it from, like, over there, which is awesome. So anyway, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians. And I, I got to say, going through this series on Galatians, I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, I, 
Galatians. To be real honest with you, I was just trying to fill in some time before we start our next series about Jesus. And uh, so, whatever, Galatians, I just kind of, kind of picked the book and then came up with this rationale for what the series would look like. And the last time I really studied Galatians was in college. I took this class called Romans and Galatians. It was this very academic approach to Galatians. We spent the majority of the semester just debating whether Paul wrote Galatians uh, after his first missionary journey or after his second missionary journey. And already I can tell some of you are like, I'm bored already, right? It was a great class, but it was a very academic approach. And, and I kind of lost a taste for uh, how uh, beautiful the book of Galatians is. And I, I'm falling in love with this book all over again. Because um, although the word circumcision is used in Galatians more than most of us are comfortable with, which is once, um, you know, what it really comes down to, Galatians is, is a Jesus manifesto. I mean, if you peel back some of the bigger words that Paul uses and some of the, the rhetorical techniques that he uses, beyond that, down underneath that, really, this is a book that's all about Jesus. It's all about the cross and what he accomplished. And uh, here I was trying to stall for our series about Jesus, and I find myself teaching about Jesus. Um, so that's, that's a good problem to have, I guess. Um, anyway, turn with me to Galatians 3. Uh, you guys maybe anticipated this showing up here this morning, and I'm sure that a lot of pastors across the U.S. are going to be talking about this, um, you know, addressing what happened in Aurora, Colorado. Uh, if you live in a hole and you don't know, there was a, a shooting at a premiere, uh, the midnight showing of the Batman, the new Batman movie, and all in all, at least last I heard, 12 people dead and 58 injured. Um, just, a, just an atrocious moment. And... Um, you know, I, I want to take a minute to kind of address that because I think that the intersection of human tragedy and Galatians, which, you know, is at the forefront of my mind in watching some of the newsreels this week, is uh, it, it kind of reveals this very poignantly uh, uh, relevant idea that we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. Our world desperately needs Jesus. It reveals for me this kind of fundamental truth that uh, humanity, as much as our culture tries to destroy uh, or deny this, uh, is, is seriously flawed. Humans are seriously flawed. You and I, I'm not just talking about those people. I'm talking about you and I. We are seriously flawed. We're broken. We're not just mildly wayward like the world kind of wants us to believe. Mildly wayward. We are way off course. Way off course. And how in the world is it possible that a 24-year-old man who's studying neuroscience, right, he's studying to be a neurosurgeon, could pre-plan and execute just such a horrendous act of evil? I mean, everybody is shocked by this. How is this even possible? And, and I think that everyone in their right mind would agree that it was just evil and wrong. You know, Leanne and I had a brief conversation. It was like, how, how could an attorney even stand up and defend a person like this? Like, I understand it's their job and somebody has to do it, but how, how could you even defend it? I'm sure that even the attorney must have this gut-wrenching feeling that this is just not right. But what's interesting to me is the flip side to a tragedy like this. Actually, uh, a tragedy like this actually makes a lot of people feel good about themselves. And before you, you uh, think that I'm crazy, let me try and explain this. Uh, again, if we peel back the layers, if we dig a little bit deeper here to kind of see what really lurks in our hearts, 
we might find this kind of sense of pride, this sense of satisfaction when events like this kind of bubble to the surface. Because a, a, a tragedy of this magnitude centered around the depravity of one man or, or a small group of people and their actions, what it does is when we view that, doesn't it kind of make justifying our own evil actions easier? And let me, let me try and explain what I mean by that a little bit more. I, I believe that at least to some extent, everybody who lives recognizes their own sin, at least to some level. Romans 1, if you read it, it says, God has made himself clear to humanity. He has revealed himself, his basic moral laws, his character in creation, etc. God has made the existence of himself and his righteousness clear, and he's made the existence of his hatred for sin clear. Okay? But tragedies like this kind of dredge up our selfish, sinful pride because we begin to think like this. I'm not perfect, that's for sure. I could admit that. Okay? And, and you could ask my family, interview them. I'm not going to deny it because they would say it's true. right? But I certainly would never go into a dark movie theater and just start killing people. Like, I'm, I may not be the best person in the world. I have some, some character flaws. I have some bad traits. But... I'm certainly not that bad, right? I may have a tinge of brokenness, or, or if you want to go so far as to call it evil, sure, maybe a little bit. But at least I'm not that guy. Shame on him. Shame on him. He should ju- be judged harshly, and rightly so. You know, this is a, an atrocity. But I, I want to take, take this opportunity in the light of these events to kind of point out the reality that... Uh, You know, all of us, to some extent, although we're not that guy, we are bad people. Pretty good is just not good enough. Pretty good is just not good enough. You know, I'm I'm, I'm proud to say I'm pretty good, right? But it's just not quite good enough. And and where this... uh, where this conversation leads to is this age-old question for humanity... And it's this question. In light of our sin, in light of our deficiency, that we're, we're prone to admit to at least some extent, are we made right by faith in God, or are we made right by our own actions and works? That's a question that I think everybody will have to wrestle with in their life at some point. Every religion, every philosophical worldview addresses that question. It's, it's at the heart of what they believe. Now, more and more pop religions simply say it's not an issue. Sin's not an issue. And then we see a killing like this on TV, and we realize, wow, maybe it actually is an issue. Okay? The classical religions tend to kind of put it this way. Is it possible for us to be good enough? Or to simplify it even more, is it faith or is it works? Is it what you profess you believe, or is it the way that you live your life? And for most people, if you get to the heart of what they really believe, the answer to that question is a belief that as long as I'm better than some people, I should probably be okay. As long as I outperform the majority, I'm probably going to make it. Okay? As long as I'm a good person, everything's going to work out for me, and I'm going to eventually go to heaven. Some very interesting statistics for you guys. And I had PowerPoint slides, but then when we converted them to a different file format, they fell off, which it's probably better this way anyway. Just listen. 
90% of people who live in the U.S. believe in the afterlife. Nine out of ten people believe that when they die, they will end up in some sort of afterlife. Okay? But only one half of one percent, one half of one percent, point five people in the U.S. think they're going to hell. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know about you guys, but my personal experience is that, I don't know, it just doesn't, maybe you guys know nicer people than I do, but there's some disparity there. Like, I I just, I I have a hard time believing that it's only 0.5, okay? Now, um, uh, it, 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 what, I, what I love about the point five two is that in this survey, and this is information based on off of Barna, he does, uh, he does surveys like this, primarily dealing with religion. I, I, I do have to say I love the, the point five people who are stubborn enough and honest enough to say, yeah, I believe in hell and I'm probably going there. I just have to say, you know, I, I hope that's not the case. I want to reach those people. But uh, at least they're honest enough to say, man, I look at my life and I know where I'm going, Right. Um, Now, here's another interesting statistic. 43% of people say they're going to heaven because they have a trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. 43% of people in America, so almost half. But 50% of those, okay, so half of the 43%, believe that a person can earn salvation based on good works. It's sort of confusing and contrary, right? They believe they're going to heaven because they have faith in Jesus, but they also believe that you can earn salvation by good works. I don't understand how those two are compatible worldviews. Now, what these statistics reveal about the American worldview is that while most of us are religious, spiritual is a word you hear a lot. You know, I don't go to church, but I'm very spiritual, you know, I don't attend a church. Or I don't profess any specific faith, but I'm very religious. Um, although most of us profess a faith in, in a God of some sort, only about one person out of every five believes that faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. And the other 80% of people are banking on living a good enough life to not be sent to hell. My guess is in a church you're probably going to have more of the 20% who believe that Jesus is the only way. But I'm also going to go out on a limb and say, we've got some of the 80% of people in this room who think, some of you think, you might make it to heaven just based on the merits of your good works. Okay? You're hoping you do good enough to not be sent to hell. Now, here's the problem. Okay? How do you know? How do you know? How do you know what is good enough? Uh, We all agree that the guy who enters the movie theater and shoots innocent people is like the very lowest standard. He's the bottom rung on this ladder of, of works achievement. But how much higher than him do you have to be? Like just one step up? And in which case, we're all going, right? We're in good shape. Most of us, at least. And if we're justified by works and the solution to the human problem is found in simply being good enough, how do we know what's good enough? How do you figure that out? Okay, can you sin one day a week and still make it? Can you sin once a day and still make it? Can you sin 50% of the time or does it only have to be 20% of the time? Like, how do you know where in there the line is? Um, If you lived a perfect life, but you committed a sin in the last 10 minutes before you died, would you go to hell? Would it not be good enough? 
or do you just need to do more good than bad? Is that it? And if that's the case, then my question is, why don't we have more people walking around with notebooks and tally marks? Okay? Because if you just have to outperform the bad with good, we should all be keeping track, right? Because I wouldn't want to get behind. I would be screwed if I got behind. Right? Making sure that we're just staying ahead of the game. Right? I got 5,000 tally marks in the bad, but it's okay because I got 5,001 in the good. So today I'm good shape. I'm in good shape, right? And maybe if I add one more to the bad, well, then I'll bring a couple extra pieces of food for the food drive, and then I'm back up to 5,002. Now, the answer that the Apostle Paul, I, I, I mean, let, let, me, let me say one more thing along those lines, okay? If, if 80% of people are banking on good works to get them to the better seat in eternity, to get them out of hell and into heaven, and it's for eternity. Eternity. Okay, your lifetime's an infinite, infinite magnitude. Thank you. Wouldn't you expect to see a lot more people considering the actions of their lives and doing something to live better? Like, we live in this, this totally bizarre, disconnected world where we believe our good works are going to get us somewhere, but we still behave so poorly. Why is that the case? Okay, now, the answer that the Apostle Paul presents in the book of Galatians, and this is the Apostle Paul inspired by God himself. He wrote this at the inspiration of God. The answer that he presents is very simple, and we're going to look at it in greater detail this morning as we study Galatians. Here's the answer. There is no good enough. There is simply no good enough. If you sit here this morning and you believe that you just might make it because you're going to be good enough, I'm going to tell you, there is no good enough. You are walking on thin ice. You are treading in dangerous waters. Okay? The only solution to the problem of human sin, evil, and death is in Jesus. That is the only solution there is. No amount, and, and here's what's so ridiculous about these kinds of tragedies. We're going to see so many political responses, right? We need more gun control. We need more self-control. We need more laws, more rules, more political oversight. No amount of human progress, rules, regulations, self-improvement, taxes, psychotherapy, or self-esteem is going to solve this problem for us. I mean, didn't we have that debate after Columbine 13 years ago? Another horrendous tragedy? And we thought we'd solved it then, right? And here we are again. It's only in Jesus Quick example, okay? I work at a bank, so I follow the fi financial news pretty closely. And I was fascinated by this article that I read on Friday. You know, as a result of the financial meltdown of 2008-2009, the federal government passed a law called Dodd-Frank. And within that law uh, were these rules and regulations, 2,600 pages, that were supposed to be the salvation of the U.S. financial system, okay? It was meant to regulate banks, Wall Street, investment firms, the stock market. It was going to be the answer to all of the financial sin and greed that caused this recession that so many people in this room and in this city have been burned by that we're still in the middle of all these years later, okay? And the article that I read on Friday from a rather liberal source believes that uh, the power, a, a, a liberal source that believes in the power of government to regulate enough to solve the problem of sin is what I'm getting at, okay? They simply stated in that article, it's not working. Dodd-Frank isn't working. 
We passed it several years ago, and it's not accomplishing what we hoped it, it would. It's said that since the enactment of the bill, Wall Street has still operated with greed. People have still been too risky with other people's money. Crooks and criminals have abused their clients. And banks have sought their own profits and interests over the greater good. That's what the article said. And it was this article that was like, what in the world? I thought the solution was in Dodd-Frank. And, and as I read this, I just had to laugh as the author tried to make sense of why this 2,600-page regulation didn't solve the problem. And here's why. Because the human condition, guys, is so flawed that our attempts to save ourselves is like an alcoholic binge drinking to get out of alcoholism. I mean, just think about that, right? The solution to my problem is to drink more. No, that's not the case. It, it's never going to work like that. I thought that was pretty funny, but... Uh, maybe you guys don't. Anyway, it's just stupid. It's absurd, right? Maybe the reason you didn't laugh is because you were like, that's just dumb. I don't know. And, and one of my favorite ironies about the Dodd-Frank Act is that one of the senators who authored the bill is, uh, was caught several years ago running a male prostitution and drug ring out of his house. Do you see the irony there? If that's not the blind leading the blind, right? You have an immoral man imposing a moral code on other people. How bizarre is that? And we wonder why it doesn't work. Because we're all in the same boat. We are flawed. And our flawed attempts to solve our flawed human character don't work. It's just absurd. Now, as far as I know, and, and I feel pretty secure saying this, Christianity is the only religion that says that the answer is not in anything that humans can lay any sort of claim to. Go discover that for yourself. Do some digging. Find out what's at the heart of what other people believe. And what you're going to find out is that most people think there is potential in the human capacity to save ourselves. And what Christianity says is, no, you do not have the capacity in yourself. Stay the way that you are and you are doomed to end up continuing in your sin and immorality, disobedience and suffering from the results of evil. Okay? What Christianity says is the answer is in Jesus. And like Paul says in so many of his books, thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God. Because it's not in good works. How would we know then if we've obtained it or not? It's in Jesus, and then we can know. It's not in laws, it's in Jesus. It's not in feeling good about yourself, it's in Jesus. It's not in scientific progress that will eventually one day give us a solution. It's in Jesus. The solution is here. We know what it is. It's not in any human understanding. It's simply in Jesus. That's where the answer lies. Now here's what Paul has to say about it. Read Galatians 2 with me. We're going to read verses 15 through 16. Let me actually go ahead and just read the whole passage, which is to verse 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? 
Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, there's a lot in here, and it took me a lot of time to understand some parts of this, so we're going we're gonna to go through it together. But Paul says in Galatians 5.3, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, that if anyone wants to keep the commandment of circumcision, because he's trying to deal with this idea in Galatians, they believe that now they have Jesus, they also need to do good works. They also need to add to their faith in Jesus circumcision. And what Paul says in Galatians 5.3 is, he says, if anyone wants to keep the commandment of circumcision, like the Galatians are considering, then they're obligated to keep the entire law of the Old Testament, all 613 rules. And in a few weeks, I'm going to put the, the whole 613 laws and all of the references up on the screen for you so you can see how overwhelming that is, how impossible that is. But what Paul's getting at is if they think that circumcision is good and the law in its entirety is good, which it is, and they want to keep the law because it's good, Paul says, then you have to keep the whole law. And the implied answer that he gives here is, you can't do it. You simply cannot do it. It is not possible. Now, I think that everyone would agree that the moral law that God spelled out for his people is good. We're talking about the moral law from the Old Testament. Do not kill. Do not steal. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't lie, etc. We all agree that it's good. And I don't think there's anyone in this room who would go so far as to say the moral law that God gave people is bad. But then the question arises, why don't we keep it? Why don't we keep it? If we say it's good and we believe that, why don't we keep it? You know, Jesus said the moral law really goes so far as to say uh, if, if you have hatred for somebody even, then you have engaged in the act of killing them. You have essentially murdered them in your heart. Okay? So why do we lie? Why do we cheat? Why do we steal? Why do we desire what other people have? And what Paul's getting at in, in these verses here is that we don't keep it because we're full of sin. We simply can't. We cannot do it. We may be better than the guy who goes into a movie theater and shoots people. We're all better than that guy, right? But the simple fact of the matter is that we can't be justified by our good works because we don't keep God's moral law. Quick anecdote. At work, we have to make these follow-up calls to people when we help them with their accounts. And I hate it. I hate the telephone if, if you've ever called me, you know that it takes me like three days to get back to you because I just get anxiety when my phone rings. It's so weird. Someday I'll get some therapy. But, um, but we have to do these follow-up calls. And then to make sure that we're doing the follow-up calls now, they want us to put these notes in the system on people's accounts so that we remember why we called them and what we talked about so they can look and see that we're actually doing our job. And the other day, instead of making this phone call, I confessed this to our students a few weeks ago. Um, I just made up some notes. I was like, I don't want to call this guy. I just made some stuff up. I lied. I lied at work. And it's like documented, a documented lie. I haven't confessed it to my manager yet, but um, you guys will hopefully forgive me and, and see past that. But yes, from time to time, even I, your pastor, I do sin. I tend to keep, 
Uh, I tend to do good works 51% of the time, so I'm pretty sure I'm in good shape. But from time to time, I'm just kidding. Again, I thought that was funny, but I'll just stick to my notes here. But here's the problem. I think lying is terrible. I think it's terrible. I hate it when people do it to me. I, I, I dread the day when my children start to lie to me. Uh, I hate it when I lie. I think it's despicable. But I made up these notes without even thinking twice about it. And you know what? I wasn't even convicted for like several hours before I was like driving home and I was thinking about Jesus and I was like, wow, I'm a liar. Like I lied today at work to my boss. And I believe that lying is bad, but I still lie. I still lie. I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm a liar. I don't have a chronic lying problem. But from time to time, I tell a lie. And, and I believe it's bad, but I do it. And what Paul is trying to help us understand is that as much as we might want to keep God's moral law, as much as we might believe that it's good, we don't actually keep it. We're guilty of breaking it. We're not capable of staying true to what we believe to be as good and right. And so he says, the solution is not in our best efforts or in our good works. Again, guys, the solution is found in Jesus. Jesus. Verse 16, he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we try and keep the law and it doesn't work. So we know that the law can't justify us. So we have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can't do it. Read on with me, verses 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, this is the part where I, I literally sat there for like 30 minutes trying to figure out what in the world Paul means. Like, what is he saying? I think I finally came to an understanding here, okay? Uh, years ago, I did this missions trip to the Dominican Republic, and we were down there building uh, an orphanage. But at the same time, we were trying to teach high school students about leadership. What does it mean to be a leader? And we were building this orphanage. For the most part, the high school students were doing the work, and we were kind of just quality checking them because we wanted them to have the experience, okay? And at one point during one of the trips that I was on, because we did like four or five different teams that came down, one of the other leaders that I was there with looked at one of the walls, a four-foot wall, high wall that they had built that they were about halfway done with, and he comes over and he just kicks it over. He just kicks the wall over. I mean, we're talking like a day and a half worth of work, okay? And of course, our students are upset, and he went on to point out that that wall was totally crooked. This is a house that children are going to live in. And we can't have children living in a house where a wall is crooked and might fall down. Okay? And after the fact, a couple of the students agreed they had thought that the wall was crooked as well. But they just kept on building it. Okay? Now, if they went back and they rebuilt that same wall again and they made it crooked again, knowing that they had made that mistake the first time, wouldn't we call them foolish? We would say, you're stupid. What are you doing? You, we, we just ruined a day and a half of your work because it wasn't a straight wall. Here's what's going on. Okay? Paul says to the Galatians, you left the idea of good works. And you came and you put your faith in Jesus and in him alone. Because you saw that good works couldn't cut it. And Jesus could. And he says, 
You traded up good works for Jesus because you came to the understanding that Jesus was superior, but now you're considering leaving Jesus to go back to good works? Why would you do such a foolish thing? That's like tearing down a crooked wall because you know it's crooked and rebuilding it crooked again. What's the point? It just doesn't make any sense. And if you do it, then what you're really saying, what you're really saying is that Jesus is not enough. He is not good enough. And that's where the word transgressor comes in. Because he says, you show that you don't have faith in Jesus. You don't believe Jesus is enough. And if Jesus is not enough, then what hope do you have? But if you leave the cross of grace to put your faith back in works, you're doomed. You're in trouble. You're building a crooked wall again. And you know that the attempts to be good enough are only going to re- reveal your sinfulness. And why would you forsake Jesus to try and earn your salvation again? Why would you do that? If I tear something down because it's not good enough, but rebuild it exactly as it was, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. And, and even worse than that, if I then go back to good works after having believed in Jesus, then I'm a sinner who tells Jesus he's not enough for me. Why would we do that? And like Paul says at the very end of our passage this morning, for if justification were through the law or through good works, then Christ died for nothing. Christ died for nothing. And we know that's not the case, right? Agree with me here, please. You know that Jesus did not die for nothing. Read verses 19 through 20 with me. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Jesus died on the cross, the law became sidelined. It became secondary to faith in Jesus. Jesus now is first and foremost. Putting our faith in him is the most essential thing, and it's all that we need to do for salvation. The Bible makes that clear. And when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we identify with him in his death, and as a result, we die to the law. We stop believing that the law can justify us. We're no longer obligated to keep the law in its entirety. We're no longer under the power of the law, and therefore we're free from the curse of the law and its demands. Okay? What it comes down to is that the distinction between sinner and righteous is no longer determined by the law or good works. It's not. The only distinction that counts for anything is whether you trust in Jesus to save you from the curse of sin and death. That's the only distinction that means anything. Okay, now just one quick side note. I love this word crucified found here in verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's in the present tense in the Greek. What that means is that uh, it, it, it uh, connotes a, uh, an action that began in the past but has continuing and ongoing effects into the future. 
Isn't that wonderful? So at that moment of salvation, when I believed in Jesus and I identified with him in his crucifixion, I died too. But I continued to go through this process of dying to myself and identifying with Jesus and remembering that it was through his crucifixion that I'm justified. Isn't that beautiful? Some little subtleties that we don't get in the English language. Okay? We've identified with Jesus in his death. We've trusted him for salvation and grace. But we continue to crucify sinful nature. Now, you want to know where good works fits into the equation here? Because it's an important question. I mean, I even said a second ago that, uh, let's see, we're no longer obligated to keep the law. Well, does that mean we can live reckless lives? Absolutely not. Okay? Should Christians engage in good works? Yes. A resounding yes. But it's after the fact. Christ, first and foremost, justification through faith in him alone, and out of that, we then praise God through living well. Verse 20, Paul says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What this looks like is before Jesus, we are spiritually dead. We don't have the capacity to follow the law perfectly. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to please a perfect and holy God through our best efforts because we're flawed. But praise God that through Jesus, he makes us spiritually alive. That's what Paul's saying. And it's Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and God's work who lives in us. Jesus alive in us. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, guys, we've traded up our dead spirit for the alive and living spirit of Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But we still have a flesh. We still have to figure this life out. But Paul says we figure it out through faith in Jesus, who loves us, who sacrificed his life to redeem ours. And I think there are two major takeaways from this passage this morning. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. The first one is for anyone here in this room this morning who's part of that 80%, who still is hoping that you're going to be good enough to merit God's grace. I want to talk to you guys, and I've got an application for you here for a second. Please, just stop. Stop running in this hamster wheel that's getting you nowhere. Stop trying to do something that you already know is impossible. Throw away your book of tally marks. Just forget about it. Give it up. And put your faith in Jesus. Because that's where your redemption is going to be found. That's where your hope lies. It's so much easier, too. It really is. It really is. If you're carrying this burden of trying hard to earn your salvation... There is so much relief and freedom in surrendering your life to Jesus. You're finally going to sleep like a baby and stop tossing and turning because you know that your salvation is secure in Christ. Because he did it for you. He did it for you. Your best efforts are so far short of God's holy and perfect law, you're never going to make it. So just stop trying. 
and give it up to Jesus. Because you can still have that freedom. You can still have certainty for this life and the life to come through faith in Christ, the Son of God who loves you and gave his life for you. Please, if you're in that 80%, consider that this morning. And, and I believe God brought you here to hear that. Now, the second point of application is for those of us who've already put our faith in Jesus. And I was personally hit hard by this uh, as I was studying Galatians 2 this week. For me, Galatians has been really revealing in, in understanding how much I try to still earn God's favor through my good works. I believe it's only through Jesus, but I find in my motives, I'm still trying to earn God's favor. I, I think if I'm good enough, then God's going to bless our church. If I'm a little bit better pastor, more people will come to Maricopa Springs. If, uh, if I'm good enough, God's going to bless my family. If I work a little bit harder, I'll get noticed. I'll get that promotion. I'll get that financial blessing that I was hoping for. If I'm good enough, God's really going to provide for my family. If I'm good enough, God's going to help my career and move me up. If I'm good enough, this or that or this or that. And I've realized so often without even thinking about it that I play this little game where I sort of try and outbid God. I'm like, okay, God, I, I see your blessing and I'm going to raise you one more. I'll do a little bit more good works. Can you meet me? Huh? Can you do it? You want to call my bid? And, and this view of God is so flawed. It's so off. Think about it for a second, guys. God is, is so good, and he is always pouring out his grace on the lives of believers in untold measures. Most of the time, it doesn't look like what we want it to look like, right? God has yet to let me win the lottery. Okay, that may be what I want. That may be the blessing that I'm expecting him to meet me with. But he is always pouring out his grace on believers in untold measures. He gives of himself in endless amounts. Not because we deserve more, but because he's generous and he loves to give. Isn't that great? So even those of us who are believers who are trying to earn more of God's favor... Stop. Just revel in the fact that he loves to give and he's going to pour it out in your life. James says every good and perfect gift comes from God, comes down from the Father of lights, not because we deserve it, not because of our actions, but because he's a great and loving God who lavishes good things on his children. And, and for those of us who are believers, let's not be guilty of the idolatry of thinking that even, even though we've accepted Jesus, we can get more of God through our actions, through our good works, and through our good behavior. Should we live well? Should we be, engage in good behavior? Yes, because we love Jesus. But let's not get confused. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And we don't live for Christ so that he will give us more. He's already given us everything in Jesus. And so we live for him. That's the difference. Let me pray for us.
God, I pray for our church. I pray for the people in this room. God, I ask that you would pour out your blessing over the lives of the people in this room. God, the people in this room who are seeking your direction, who are seeking your wisdom, who are seeking your peace in the chaos of their lives, who continue to look for work and are confused as to why you haven't provided it yet. God, I pray for the people in this room who are dealing with intense relational conflict, for the marriages that are on rocky grounds, for the families that are struggling, God. And God, I pray that you would pour out your blessing, not because we deserve it, but because you're so good, you're so great, and you love to give. And God, forgive us of thinking that we can earn any sort of blessing from you. And forgive us for failing to see the blessings that you've already given to us. And God, I pray that we would, we would live boldly in the knowledge that you are a good and gracious God who gives freely to his children. We thank you for grace, that it was your efforts that justified us and not our own. And God, I pray for the people in this room who have yet to give it up and surrender. God, I pray that they would trust you for salvation, that they would know that there is grace through faith in Christ. And Lord, we turn to you now in a time of worship, and God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, that we could worship you in praise. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.